Hey folks, welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Church at Grove Farm. Whether it's your first time or you've been here since the beginning, we are thrilled to be a part of your spiritual walk and look forward to all that Christ is doing in your life. If you are looking for more information about Christ Church or you would like to connect with one of our pastors or ministry leaders, you can reach us on our website, ccgf.org. You can also connect with us on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Here is this week's message. Grace and peace to you. How about that? That gets you hype, huh? Who is the ghost? Yeah. Who is the goat, the greatest of all time? You know, if you're into that kind of thing, you can Google this to your heart's content and you can look up and find who's the goat in every given sport. You know, you get these lists, Tom Brady, blah, 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 right? (laughs) Enough of that. I actually this week Google, I was interested in this, who is the greatest preacher of all time? I found a list. Who's the greatest preacher of all time? And I started to read this list, and at number 10, it said, the Apostle Paul. <laughs> number 10, <laughs> the Apostle Paul? I saw Breen, I thought, like, this is list. Who made that? Gideon, Malachi, did you guys make that list? My goodness. Yeah, we really like these kind of lists, these top tens. You know, there's a list, though, that we all can agree on. I I did some Googling greatest sports moments. If you Google the greatest sports moment in baseball, you get this every time. Right? Wait, where is it? Not not me. (laughs) Greatest sports. There it is. The greatest sports moment in baseball. It's this every time. And then if you Google the greatest football moment, you get this every time. Don't we all agree on this? We can agree on that. Greatest sports moments. Right here, Pittsburgh, we love this kind of thing. You know, we we do like to buy greatest hits albums. We love to speak in hyperbole about presidents and about preachers and poets and say he is the greatest of all time or she is the greatest of all time. We're drawn to this kind of thing. We like to talk about the goat, these points of comparison. Somehow they they seem to be a, 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 a thing of interest for us particularly when they uh, speak well, when they're flattering to us. Do you remember high school superlatives? Anyone remember that? Some of you were, were voted something, worst driver, you know, the, the nicest eyes, something like that. I was actually voted, and I don't know how this happened, honestly. I'm not just being like, you know, oh shucks. I was voted most talented in my senior class. That was clearly not the case. I don't know how I did that. My wife, on the other hand, was voted biggest eater of her senior class of high school. <laughs> my kind of woman. My kind of woman. Biggest eater, Lisa Gierga. She's like this big, unbelievable. So we like these things. And so, you know, even something that's detached from us, like the Bill Mazeroski moment in the 60 World Series or Franco and the Immaculate Reception, somehow this speaks to us and we attach ourselves to it. And we like the fact that we can be associated with or be called the greatest. We all desire to attach ourselves to this kind of thing. And being the greatest comes with its perks, It comes with clout, and it actually speaks to the power dynamics of this world, the power dynamics that are at work all around us, and because of this, we worry about what people think of us. We're really into this comparison thing. We jockey for positions of influence. We seek to control as a means of leadership. Who is the greatest? It's all pride and preeminence. And this kind of thing tends to stick to our souls. Who's the goat? Well, Jesus teaches about who the goat really is. 
There's a lesson that we're looking at this morning. Malachi has already read it for us. And it's about, yes, power dynamics. And it's really about who is considered to be the greatest in the eyes of God. So let's go there. We've already looked at it, but we're going to look at it again. We're going to go verse by verse through this little section of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. We're picking up in verse 24. Let's look at who is the greatest of all time, beginning in Luke 22, 24. If you've got your Bible, follow along. You might take some notes. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them, them being the disciples, was considered to be the greatest. Okay, so here we have uh, these disciples gathered on the occasion of the Last Supper. I mean, here they are. Their, their last moments with Jesus before he's delivered to the hands of the Romans. And they're fighting with each other. They're arguing with each other. Can you imagine? I mean, this is like a scene from my family van on the way to church where the kids are fighting with each other and Lisa and I are saying, stop it or we're turning this van around and going home, right? We're yelling at each other. It's like that kind of thing. How can we be acting like this at this moment? These disciples are with the greatest human being, God-man, whoever walked the earth. They're with him, the founder and perfecter of their faith. They're with the one who knew no sin, sinless. They, They had just been with him as he's led them through the Passover meal, right before his death. A death that would be the sacrifice for their sin. And he's instituting here the the new Passover communion. And here are these guys. They're debating. And with this backdrop, their version of high school superlatives. Hey, who do people think is the best? Who's the greatest? Who's the goat among us? Who is the greatest? Okay. So that's where we are. And that's where we start. That's the backdrop of this. And Jesus addresses their question and gives them a really profound answer that I think is informative for all us on several levels. Let's go back to Luke 22, picking up in verse 25. Jesus said to them, hearing all this, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. Let's pause there. You know, think about this. Why do so many people dislike their boss? Maybe you don't like your boss. Maybe you're sitting there, yeah, I don't like my boss. I don't enjoy it. I think we've all had that boss that we struggled with. In fact, I did some some research. 75% of people say their boss is toxic. 75%, that's really high. 20% actually say they hate their boss. 20%. And then 85% of people, I think this is telling, say that they wish that their, their boss would ask for their input. You know what this speaks to? Why do people not like their boss? Because bosses have a tendency to lord it over. That's the phrase that Jesus uses, to lord it over them, to exert control, to exact their power over their employees. And so what Jesus is pointing out here is the world's model. And the world's model is the lord it over them model. It's top-down authority. Back in those times, in the times of Jesus, the top leaders were referred to by the populace as benefactors. Benefactors, Jesus indicates this. And this was the title of princes and other people in honored positions. And they prided themselves 
on being the benefactors, the people who were contributing to the well-being of their subjects. And of course, along with this comes a heaping helping of power and control and authority over the lives of the people that they're in. So yeah, they're, they're supporting you. They're, they're getting, putting bread on your table, but there's a price to be paid for it. These were the power dynamics of the day. This was the model of the day. It's the Lord it over them paradigm, the Lord it over the subjects paradigm. Let's go back now to the text and hear what Jesus says in contrast to that. Because in verse 26, he says, you are not to be like that. That's important. You might want to underline that in your Bible. You are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And the one who rules like the one who serves. So Jesus, in contrast to the world's model, introduces the kingdom model. The kingdom model. The kingdom model is that we would be servant leaders. Servant leaders. Who's the greatest? Who's the goat? Well, he says that you're to become like the youngest, even if you are the oldest, even if you are the one in control, that you're to become like the youngest. In other words, the least powerful, the the one who is least assuming in the community, that those who are in positions of power and leadership and authority are actually to become like servants, like the younger. If you were going to write something down in your notes, I would write this one down because I think it's something to consider. Serving, what Jesus is saying, is that serving is to be the distinguishing characteristic of those who follow Christ. How about that? Serving. That's the marker. That's what distinguishes a Christian, is one who serves. Now, at this church, we've made a big deal about this. Maybe you've heard me say this. We really emphasize every member ministry. You've heard me say that. And and I've sensed that it resonates with some of you. I think there's a good reason why this idea of every member ministry resonates. It's really a response to the phenomenon that says only the pros can do ministry. We have it in our culture today. Somehow we've gotten to that place. Only the pros can do it. No, it's a response to that. It's every member ministry. It's a response to the thought that you have to have a title to contribute to the church. It's a response to the notion that that Christianity is all about this Sunday morning experience. Every member ministry, God has given you, I know this for sure, staying in this place, God has given you gifts and God's given you talents. All of you. And those gifts and those talents are there and they're to be used. And not just to be a a do-gooder, a goo-dooder, <laughs> to be a do-gooder. Not just for that. They're there and given to you because Jesus has called us to serve. That's why we stress every member ministry. We're not just trying to get cheap labor. The idea is that we would follow the call and the command of Jesus who has called us to serve. And because of that, whenever you do serve, something comes to life in you. Some of you have experienced that. You start serving and you do things in the church and you do things in your home and you do things in the community and there's a joy that comes with it. There's a thrill that comes along with it. There's a blessing that comes along with it. Well, that's because this is the call of God. It's God's idea. 
It's what he's purposed you for. And so, of course, there's blessing and thrill. Of course, you come to life when you serve because God's given you gifts and talents and they're to be used to bless others, to serve others. So we desire, here's, here's a big picture vision. We desire that the church family would be known and distinguished and identified in the community and by the people who are a part of this church family by serving. That we would be known as the man. That, that church, they serve. If there's a need in the community, they show up. When there's something to be done in the church, they're on it. They're this, a church that serves. We've seen little, little glimpses of this. There was a time a few months back when I got up and said, listen, we need to start a ministry called Scrubs because we need to clean the kids' area between services. And we've had people in the, in the dozens sign up to be a part of Scrubs. I love that. We've, we've gotten up here during this past month and said, we know we need, to, we need more kids' ministry volunteers. We need people serving kids. We have moved for, I'm, I'm happy to report this, we've moved from 20 people in kids' ministry to now almost 70 people. How about that? That's every member ministry. I love it. Praise God. So listen, here's the question for you. In light of this passage, if it's true that serving is to be the distinguishing characteristic of those who follow Christ, are you serving? Are, are you serving? Or are you sitting on the sidelines? Listen, Jesus raises the bar for us and, and he calls us out and he says, listen, we are to be different. We don't think like the world. The greatest among us should be the youngest, the one who rules like the one who serves. We are called to be people who serve while you're serving. We're going to do in a couple weeks here a ministry expo. I'm excited about it. And we're going to show you, give you a chance to learn about all the ministries that are connected to Christ Church. And you have your chance to say, you know what, I want to serve. And not because I'm compelled by, by the pastor to serve, not because there's a guilt trip, but because it's the call of Christ. And this is what we're called in purpose to do. Who is the greatest? Is it the one with all the accolades and the titles? Is it true that the, the, the one with the most chips at the end wins? No, that's not what God says. The one who's the greatest is the one who binds up the brokenhearted. The greatest is to be the one who befriends the friendless. The, the one who cheers the sorrowful. The one who raises the poor. This is the goat. This is the greatest. Before we move on from this, I just want to give a word about leadership. Because I know that I'm talking to a lot of leaders right now. Christ Church, we've been blessed with many people of influence and, and leadership. And so I just want to give you a word about leadership. Because you might wonder as you read this, well, does this mean that leaders don't have authority? That's not what the passage is saying. It's talking about how we actually steward our, our authority, how we exercise it in a different way. That's what this is about. I've had to wrestle with this this week. Authority is not established by the virtue of an office. Jesus is saying that authority is established by virtue of service. By virtue of service. It's the difference between advancing your own agenda and, and then serving, or, and rather serving to benefit those whom you serve. We could talk a long time about that, but I just want to give that to you leaders as something to consider. If you're in leadership, God's giving that position. We must wrestle with this passage. You should go back and read it this week because there's something here for us to understand and follow in the way of Christ because it's really easy to buy into the world's paradigm, the world's thinking. No, Jesus says the kingdom model is servant leaders. Let's go back to the text. Let's pick up in verse 27. 
He continues this dialogue and he says, who is greater? The one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? He's saying in our culture, isn't it the person who sits in the place of prominence? Isn't it the person who sits at the, at the regal table and has all the food brought out to him? Isn't he the one considered greater? Jesus says, no. He says, I am among you as one who serves. You know, there's greatness, and then there's pioneering greatness. That's what I call it, pioneering greatness. Someone who totally redefines a, a, a system or a, or, or a culture. Jackie Robinson was one of those people. Hopefully you're familiar with Jackie Robinson. Jackie Robinson redefined American sports, specifically baseball. Jackie Robinson did this not with his words, but his actions. He was the very first African-American to play a major league baseball game. Changed everything. And he absorbed all sorts of insults hateful things, even from his own teammates. His play was remarkable, but more remarkable was the way that he endured the hatred and the insults he received. He was a pioneering greatness. That's what he possessed. Well, on a whole different level, I mean, Jackie Robinson's one thing, and that's significant, but on a whole nother level, in a whole different, different way, Jesus Christ is pioneering greatness in this passage. He's ushering in a new way. He's redefining what it means to be the goat, what it means to be the greatest. And he's talking about kingdom greatness, which comes through humility, which comes through service. It's a pioneering greatness. And he doesn't just talk about it. He acts it out for them, almost as if in a parable. You know, the, the Gospels complement one another. And if you were to flip to the Gospel of John, you'll see another passage that gives some other details about this Last Supper. I want to take you there. In, in John chapter 13, beginning in verse 4, we see Jesus act out this new definition of greatness. This new way of thinking about greatness. And he says this, or it says this in verse four. It says, he got up from the meal. This is them at the Last Supper. He got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. The God of the universe on his knees washing the filthy feet of his disciples. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you really going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing. But later, you will understand. There's this, this parable here. Jesus is expressing, he's, he's showing a new way. He's ushering and redefining. He's pioneering greatness right before them. But he takes it to a whole nother level. Soon after this meal, it was actually prophesied by Isaiah. I want to take you to Isaiah 52 and 53, considering this pioneering greatness of Jesus. You know, yeah, on one hand, Jesus, he, he ushers in this new idea of serving, that, that the, the greatest will be the least. 
He flips upside down the power dynamic of the culture and says, hey, it's not a lord it over them way. It's a servant leadership way. And he shows them this by, by getting on his knees and washing their feet. But he takes it to an entirely different level. And we see a glimpse of this in the prophecy of Isaiah. I'm going to read you several verses from 52 and 53. I want you to hear this. And consider the pioneering greatness of Jesus. Beginning in 52, 13 of Isaiah. See my servant will act wisely. See my servant, the prophet says, will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him. This is speaking of his crucifixion. Imagine Jesus on the cross. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being. And his form marred by human likeness, beyond human likeness. Skipping to 53, verse 4. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Finally, verse 11, after he suffered, he, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. He will bear their iniquities. The suffering servant Jesus Christ. We see this great picture of the redefinition of greatness of Jesus. It's not only the washing of feet. That's one thing. He flipped the paradigm upside down, but he took it to an entirely another level by God's grace, by God's power. And we see Jesus the servant. Jesus doesn't use the word servant lightly. Jesus doesn't use the word servant lightly figuratively. No, it's literal. Jesus is literally the servant to the fullest extent of his life. Jesus lived his life to the end as a servant. Don't you see it? When we talk about the greatest, when we talk about the goat, the conversation begins and ends with Jesus. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, exemplified servanthood redefined it, pioneering greatness by his death on the cross. Let's go to 28, 29, back in Luke 22. Jesus says to the disciples, after he talks about this, this lesson, he gives this lesson on, on, on service and redefining greatness. And he says, you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me. I think it's really interesting that Jesus says to this collection of disciples, he says, you have stood by me in my trials. I think those are pretty gracious words by Jesus, of course. I mean, if you know the gospels, if you've heard the stories of Jesus' life, you know this, the reality is that they haven't necessarily stood by him. I mean, think about it. You read the same Bible as me, they've been ignorant. They, they, they've been weak. They've been lacking faith. In fact, here in this moment, he knew that they would soon forsake him. And here Jesus is saying, you stood by me in my trials. By the way, his whole ministry was a trial. 
It's not just what he's going to face. From the moment he was baptized and led into the wilderness, he's been tempted. It's, it's been a trial the entire time. The weight that he had to bear. And he says, you've stood by me. Here's what we can learn from this. Jesus dwells on the good. It's amazing. Jesus dwells on the good. You know, they had been faithful to him. They had continued on with him. And Jesus sees that. So let me tell you something. This is a personal application for you. If you are in Christ, in other words, if you believe in Jesus, if you believe that he is your savior, that he paid for your sins, I want you to know this. He looks more on your strengths than on your weaknesses. That's good news. You should be excited about that. That's incredible news. He does not deal with you. Listen to this. He does not deal with you according to your sins. He didn't do it with the disciples, and he doesn't do it with us either. Not only that, he doesn't have us to repay or, or, or somehow recompense according to our iniquity. This is Psalm 103. No, Jesus looks beyond those things. What a compassionate Savior we have. We see it right here. Here are these guys fighting at the Last Supper table. Here they are being boneheaded again. They've done it over and over again. And what does he say? Hey, you've been with me. You've stood by my side. I love that we serve a God like this. So if you have come up short, if you have stumbled, if you have failed in knowledge or, or, or in courage or in faith or in patience, I want you to know this. God does not deal with you according to your sins in Christ Jesus. God does not have you to repay him because of your iniquity. No, through Christ, by his grace, by his mercy, he overlooks that. And so here's the thing I would say for that. If you are in Christ, may you and I, may we love Jesus with our hearts, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength. May we stand with him. May we continue on with him just as the disciples did. What a great news. What great news for us today. Jesus also here in this, these verses, he warns the disciples, he's warned them, but he extends an opportunity, an invitation to them. You know, he's warned them of leadership wrongly used, but now he extends to them this great invitation. He says, I confer on you a kingdom. He extends the promise of leadership to those who are faithful. Confer on your kingdom. This is big. This is major. Don't miss this. He is passing on the actual administration and leadership of the kingdom of God to these guys who are arguing at the table. They were observers, but now he is making them participants in the kingdom of God. They're agents, they're officers, they're leaders in the kingdom of God. 1 Peter 2, 9 says this, they're a royal priesthood. We are a royal priesthood. And this kingdom is conferred to you and I as well. We who trust in Jesus are the disciples of Jesus. And God is conferring a kingdom. He's saying, hey, I want you to be my agents. I want you to be my representatives. I want you to be my officers, my leaders in the world. I confer on you a kingdom. 
I've given you the operation and administration of the kingdom of God here on earth. Go and serve. Go and love people. Go turn the world upside down. Wow, what a picture we've got here. I want to take you to verse 30. Jesus says, I confer on you this kingdom. And then in verse 30, he says, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What we have here is Jesus inviting. And now he is speaking prophetically. He's also speaking uh, in a way that it's alluding to something that is not just in the moment, but is yet to come. He's speaking figuratively when he says that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom. He's inviting the disciples into eternity through a relationship with him to come and sit at his table. And listen, the greatest, the goat, is inviting you to his table today. The one who's redefined what it means to be a leader. The, the one who embodies service. The one who by his grace has overlooked your sins. And not dealt with you according to your transgressions. According to your iniquity. He doesn't make you pay him back. He says, come, sit with me, eat and drink and by table, what an invitation. You know, eat and drink, that, that phrase that says that you may eat and drink at my table. I, I looked up and did some study this week on the words, and, and it actually uh, speaks to something that is, a, is, is, is both present tense, but with continuing action. In other words, not just for that moment. It's continual. It's not a one-time single meal. It's an ongoing provision that God is providing. Come and sit at my table. The invitation is there for you today to come and sit at the table with Jesus. Come eat with him. Come drink with him, he says. Come and sit at my table. I've overlooked your sins. I've changed the whole paradigm. I've flipped it upside down. I've redefined what, what it means to be a leader. Come and sit at my table. And so here's what I would leave you with today. Come and take your place at the table. What are you waiting for? Come and take your place at the table that God has provided and set for you. Come and take your place at the table. Come to serve. Not just to be fed. Not to be served. Come to serve. That's the invitation. And let me tell you, there's joy with it. There's a thrill. There's a blessing when you come to the table to serve. Come to the table so that you can live for Jesus Christ. Put your full trust and hope in him. I want to give us an opportunity to pray as we close here. And here's what I want to put before you, a simple prayer. The prayer is this, that you would say to God, you have this opportunity this morning, oh God, I want to take my place at your table. And that says a whole lot. It says I want to serve it says potentially for you, if you've never said to God, yes, I want to take the invitation offered and extended to me by Jesus Christ to sit at the table and eat and drink with him, to know him, to find him to be my savior, recognizing that he's the one who embodies servanthood, 
by going to the cross and, and that my iniquity, my sin, my wrongdoing is covered by his blood, his death on the cross. Will you come to the table? Let's pray. Let's go before this incredible God, the one who is like none other, the one who is truly the goat, the greatest of all time. Let's go before him. Oh God, we thank you for Jesus. He who flipped the world upside down. Who introduced new paradigms of power and calls us to follow in his footsteps. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus not only gave us an example of servanthood, one who would get on his knees and wash feet and call us to do the same, but he went to an entirely different level and he exemplified what it means to be a servant. He redefined servanthood on the cross where he bled and he died to pay for sins. And then by his glorious resurrection, according to your power, he's raised to new life. We thank you for Jesus, the true goat, the greatest of all time. Oh Lord, we're called to experience his greatness and to live with his greatness as an example in our own world today. And so, God, this morning as we come here, we have a simple prayer. And the prayer is this. Oh, God, I want to take my place at your table. God, I desire to sit, to eat, and drink with Jesus. I want to take my place at the table. Maybe if you're a leader, that's your challenge today, to come before the Lord and say, God, I want to learn to be like Jesus, to serve, to not buy into the world's way of lording it over people. I want to take my place at the table and eat and drink with Jesus and be a faithful steward of his kingdom. Maybe your prayer is just say, God, I want to take my place at the table. I want to serve. I want to give up my, my self-absorbed ways, my selfishness, and I want to serve my family. God, I want to serve my friends and my community. God, I want to serve the church. I want to be like Jesus. For still others, there's another prayer. Oh God, I want to take my place at your table. And I want to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ. God, I thank you that you overlook sins. And so if that's you, if you're the person out there who is saying, you know, I, I've never taken the invitation to come and sit at the table and eat and drink with Jesus, this is your moment. In fact, in your mind, you might even imagine Jesus welcoming you to his table to eat and drink with him. You could say this to God in your own heart and your own mind. Oh God, I want to take my place at your table. 
God, I thank you that you don't deal with me according to my sins. I thank you I don't have to repay you in some way. Rather, God, I thank you for Jesus, your son, who I believe paid for my sins on the cross, who died and rose again. He's the greatest of all time. Oh God, I desire to live for Jesus. Teach me to live like he lives. God, I want to take my place at your table. Oh God, we thank you for this this great text that you've given us that teaches us how to live, that shows us the way, the way to real life, everlasting life. And we thank you for Jesus, the suffering servant, the one who flips the paradigm, the one who redefines greatness, a pioneer. We thank you for him, Lord. And we pray all of this in his holy and matchless name. Amen.